Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of I One Two, the podcast that spotlights important role players from your favorite professional teams and their journey to becoming a champion. Mostly everyone knows the story of goaltender Patrick Waugh and how he helped lead the Colorado Avalanche to the franchise's second Stanley Cup in 2000-2001. But today's guest played an important role in the Avs' success that year, adding grit, a defensive mindset, and heart. He tallied 15 goals and 17 assists during the regular season, adding 2 goals and 3 assists during the postseason. He also added the King Clancy Memorial Trophy as the player who made significant humanitarian contributions. He was a left winger from the University of Minnesota Duluth who spent 11 years in the National Hockey League with stints on Edmonton, Philadelphia, Colorado, and St. Louis. So let's get right to it and talk to today's guest, Sean Podine. So you grew up in an area where ice hockey dominates. What what is that like to be in that part of the country where it's so ingrained in you? When you grow up here, everybody does it, right? Everybody skates, whether you play ice hockey or you skate at the outdoor ponds or you figure skate, whatever it is. Hockey is just a, a backbone everybody kind of does to a certain age at whatever extent. And where I grew up in Rochester, we had the biggest youth hockey association in the state. So you can imagine how many kids were at the rink every day and how many opportunities there were for someone to have a chance to go as far as they wanted to or could. When did you When did you start? ice skating, I guess, because you don't play hockey, you kind of start on, on the skates. When did you start that? I started at five years old at a chipmunk in the figure skating play at the Rochester Civic Auditorium. <laughs> did that for a year and then decided, I think we called it termites back then, but they put the little um, board up and had two little corners on the bottom and the middle one where you could shove the puck in and try to score. So yeah, I started at five and started playing hockey when I was six. So then you kind of play in like junior peewee leagues and then you move up to high school what what's sean podine like in high school hockey (laughs) um it's pretty funny i got my driver's license at five foot five 130 pounds so i was a pretty small slight individual i had okay hands bad skater grew up in southern minnesota and i was a pretty good player in that area not the best in high school but again a lot of opportunities and I started growing, and as I, as I got taller and lankier, I got a little shiftier and had a little bit more reach. was never the toughest player, you know, physicality-wise, more of a playmaker kind of player through high school, and that quickly changed after that. <laughs> you started out in college on a scholarship to the United States International University, <laughs> so I, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that. I know I wasn't. I had to do a little research. So how did you go from Minnesota all those lakes and all that ice to sunny and beautiful San Diego. Well, a lot of the Minnesota teams, actually all of them, didn't really want me. So (laughs) Coach Brad Buteau, who was coaching out in San Diego at United States International University, offered me a scholarship and I tried it. And I realized very quickly that when I was out there, I was separated from what you talked about, kind of the state of hockey and being around me everywhere I was. And it meant the world to me. Growing up, I always wanted to play at University of Minnesota Duluth and be a bulldog. That was my dream. I remember coming to a realization that if I didn't chase that dream, I'd have that regret my whole life. It was one of the tougher conversations I had with Coach Buteau, and he understood. He got it. He was the head coach at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis before he went out to San Diego. So he understood what I wanted to do and the dream I wanted to chase, and I appreciate for him letting me go and letting me try it. Can it be a little distracting in San Diego to kind of build your hockey game there with There's a lot going on as far as the sun. It's always beautiful. I mean, any time of year. Can that be a little bit of a distraction? You mean when I was playing beach volleyball, the Mm -hmm. day of preseason games, and there was a couple coolers on the side? Yeah, that was very distracting. It sounds a little (laughs) bit like the setting for Top Gun. Yeah, actually, <laughs> we our college was literally across the street from the, what was it called, the Miramar Air Force Base, and that's where Top Gun was filmed. It was it was literally right there. What was it that led you to go back to Minnesota Duluth after they kind of, for lack of a better term, passed you over the first time around? What was it that kind of sparked the interest? You know, back then there was only two colleges in Minnesota that had hockey, University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and then University of Minnesota, Duluth. And Duluth was always a smaller school, the underdog. You know, I was more, I more enjoyed the smaller schools. I didn't like big situations, big universities, just 
big anything. I really like the small, quaint feel of a college like that. So I just always wanted to go there. Northern Minnesota was a lot like where I grew up, very blue collar, very, um, you know, non-materialistic, I guess you could put it that way. And I just felt very comfortable in those those uh, settings. And what was it like for you to return return home and then play for the team that you've always wanted to play for? What was that experience like? It wasn't that easy. I got home and the coach at Duluth told me not to come up. They had too many players. So it it got off to a rocky start. And I was very, again, blessed to have a junior coach. His name is Frank Saratori, coaches at Air Force Academy now. And he just literally badgered Coach Sertich until they let me come up. And I think without a word of a lie, I was the fifth or sixth line player by myself. I would practice with the college team because I had to sit out a year because I transferred. So I would practice till Friday. Then I'd take my car down to Rochester and then I'd play with the junior team that Coach Saratori was coaching at the time in my hometown. And I'd play Friday, Saturday, and then usually Sunday. Then I'd drive my car back up Monday morning for class at eight in the morning. So it was it was a, a long first quarter, but it was well worth it and really enjoyed it. Was there any threat of burnout during that? Because that, just hearing that sounds a little exhausting. Well, you know, I'm 52 now, so at 18, I realized you really don't have a burnout switch. (laughs) I got plenty of burnout switches during the day today. But you know what? Back then, it was just chasing a dream, and you you really don't get tired doing that. You're young and immortal, right? Yeah, that's exactly the, the mindset at the time. So you were drafted at 20 years old by Edmonton and things were a little different back then. Uh, There wasn't the big, (laughs) there wasn't the big 1200 rounds on ESPN and there wasn't the walk up and get the Jersey. What, what was that experience? Like, how did you find out you were drafted? So that's a great story. And it's hard to tell kids these days. I'm, I was driving home from California. I'd flown back out to San Diego to drive home with my friend who was the equipment manager for the United States International University team. So we're driving back and I stopped in Omaha because there were no cell phones. I used the pay phone and I called home and my dad peddled the paper, you know, back in my hometown of Rochester. And he goes, yeah, it's in the paper. You're supposed to get drafted. Like this, this is back when they had 12 <laughs> 12 rounds. So they were drafting, you know, fifth cousins of GMs or something. And I said, yeah, they said that the last two years, I don't expect to. And we came rolling in like two, three in the morning to my mom's place. And she woke up and she said, yeah, you got drafted. I was like, what? She said, yeah, you got drafted. I said, by who? She goes, the Edmonton Oilers. And I remember sitting down and just putting my face in my hands, saying to myself, I will never be able to play for that team. They're way too good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it wasn't like I got a phone call. I got a, le- a form letter in the mail, the snail mail, six weeks later asking my name, what team I was on, which way I shot. <laughs> so it was a little different than today. Nowadays, they send you a hat in the mail and, and say, put this on and we're going to videotape you, you know? Exactly. <laughs> there is no hat. <laughs> so so most people your age that get drafted by the Edmonton Oilers at, at that point in time are probably going berserk thinking they have the opportunity to play with Yari Curry and Wayne Gretzky <laughs> and Paul Coffey and all those guys. Meanwhile, you're scared to death just because of the fact that there's the potential you think you're never going to get to see the light of day. You're being polite. I wasn't scared. I was completely <laughs> disheartened <laughs> knowing I would never be able to play with them. <laughs> so did you know when you got drafted by them, did you know anything about their minor league system and, and where you'd wind up? No, not not a thing. Again, it's hard to tell kids this. I grew up in a town that had three TV stations, one in Rochester, one in Austin, Minnesota, and one in Mason City, Iowa. So even things that happened up in the cities, we had no idea. It just wasn't part of our world. It was just so foreign to what is happening today. So I knew nothing about the Cape Breton Oilers. And I knew nothing about pretty much anything NHL except for Sunday afternoon Peter Puck with the Flyers. That was all I knew. <laughs> the North Stars were up north. I knew that too. So what was it like to pack up and to head out there and to play for for the the minor league Oilers? And what was that experience kind of like for you? You know, I was 22, single, didn't have a, you know, a pot to pee in. And so it was it was no big deal for me to go anywhere. And I went to my first training camp in Edmonton and, you know, I loved it. It was a great experience. Went down to Cape Breton and I was actually supposed to be sent down to the East Coast League, but they had so many injuries that they had to keep me on as a 10th forward. Back then, I don't know how it is today, but you only got to dress 10 forwards a night, and they couldn't afford to have more than 10 forwards <laughs> on the uh, team. And so by you know luck, I just got to stick with the team. And 
my first year was a long year of not playing. And when I was in the lineup, not playing. And it was just what it was. And it was back then, it was a very, very tough league. I mean, not probably before the generation before me, comparatively speaking, but there were a lot of tough guys that were in the lineups every night. You had your proverbial fighters, one, two, or three of them that were going to be on the ice on the other team and yours. It was a great experience. I was playing hockey. I was I got, was getting paid to play hockey for the first time in my life. I mean, all that I loved, but it was a long way from home. I'll be honest. I got a little homesick after a couple of years, but it was a great experience and the organization was great. Did it have a little bit of that slap shot circus vibe? Like a little bit of players had <laughs> players had roles and they were kind of, they hammed it up a little bit. I mean, was it a little bit of that? I, I wouldn't say hamming it up is the right terminology because I'm telling you what, I was scared you know what, of some of the guys on other teams and even on our own, they would, I remember one time I fought a guy and our tough guy said, Sean, you don't do that. I do that. I was like, thank God, I don't want that to happen again. (laughs) I just got the crap beat out of me. I remember times where the budgets were really low. So out of our 80 games, we'd play 68 in the Maritimes. And one time in a 12 game stretch, we played the same two teams six times. I mean, by the sixth time, you're just looking at each other like, you know what, let's just take it easy tonight. I mean, there was a lot of jawing going on saying, let's just get through this. Well, I'll be okay. All friends in the morning. Well, you mentioned the biggest guy on the team saying, I'll take care of it. I watched the interview with you that wasn't too too old. And it the reason you chose 25, is this true? Because you thought the two numbers were big and they'd make you look bigger? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, uh, I was number 11 in high school. And, you know, I just remember those numbers that looked so little <laughs> so I went to college they asked what you want I said because I was trying to get I was starting to grow then and you know I went from like I said five five one thirty at 16 to I think at 20 I was six two and a half two twenty so I had made some major growth and I was like you know what I like looking big this feels good to be big I like not getting picked on so <laughs> I thought 25 would make me look <laughs> a little extra big <laughs> so you wind up I, I believe in your second or third season you win the Calder Cup uh, in Cape Breton. What was that like to go through the steps of, I can't even get to the college I want. And now all of a sudden I'm winning. And yes, it's at a minor league level, but you're still winning a championship. You know what? I have to thank, uh, Mr. Sather for that one. I, I actually, that was my third year. I was in the minors for the first half and I got called up and I finished the last, I think it was 40 games up in Edmonton. And I was blessed enough to get invited to the world championships that year too. Last guy invited. So the world championships back then, they were during the playoffs. They were after the first round. So they would invite the big names. But back then, they really didn't attend it that often. Not all of them. So they'd get third or fourth line players to come and you know help out. And so I went over and did the world championships. And I remember I had a wedding to go back to. And I was sitting down during breakfast time and Mr. Sather came up and asked me if I'd go back and play in the playoffs with Cape Breton. I said, would you mind if I went home to my best friend's wedding? I'm the best man. And he goes, yeah, sure. Just make sure you're there by Sunday. And so he gave me the opportunity to go back there. I went back to the minor leagues and you would think I'd go back and be on a you know upper tier line coming back from the NHL. But no, I was a hanger on or third line player. We had a really, really good minor league team. So we were very, again, blessed to to have the experience to win that cup and feel what it's like to be in a parade and have the city come out and, you know, greet you. And that's a cool, cool, you know, vibe. Well, then you kind of transition to the NHL after that point. And uh, could you recall your first NHL goal and kind of some of the players you looked up to early when you were kind of getting your start and officially getting your feet wet in the NHL and not bouncing back and forth a little bit? You know, my first goal, I remember like it was yesterday, it was in the first period against Washington at Wash in their old building. And it, it was just, I think that was the first year they instituted the point nine point one seconds left or whatever it was. And um, the puck came around the boards. I covered for the D, took to the middle, took a slap shot. And while I was falling, I watched the puck and it went top shelf with like 0.4 seconds left. And it was like my third shift of the period, fourth line, whatever. <laughs> and it, it felt like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I'll never forget that feeling. I remember after the game, we lost 5-2 and doing an interview and they're asking me about the game. And I was, you know, pulling out the old... Uh, Crash Davis, the good Lord willing, just happy to be here. You know, tough loss for the team. But inside, <laughs> I felt like a million bucks, man. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the most relieving feelings I've had in my life. You know, there, there's guys like a Kelly Buckberger that I'll never forget that I always tried to play like he was tougher than me and he scored more than me. But I figured if I could just be a B-grade Kelly Buckberger, you know what, I could maybe make it in this league. 
because he just he was the, the consummate uh, teammate and he's still with the organization. I mean, that's how much they, they think of him. And guys got just a guy like that is someone that I would kind of emulate and tried to play like. You became a free agent, so you kind of had your pick of the litter to an extent. Why did you choose Philadelphia in further developing your career? What was it enticing about about the city? Was it going back to those old TVs on the three channels that you had that kind of sparked it a little bit? (laughs) Let's just say I wasn't the most sought after UFA in 1994. And I had a few teams that were interested and Philadelphia really stepped up to the table and offered me a contract. It was the first time in my my career that I was offered a one-way contract. I didn't even know what one-way meant at the time. Found out that's you get paid that much the whole year no matter what. And I was like very intrigued by it. And I also loved the style that Philadelphia played. And I go right back to it. Blue Collar City. It was the first big city that I'd lived near and gone into and explored. Loved the fan base. They, I mean, I remember playing against them and they were just mean and rough and I just I just love and everything was about winning I mean everything was about winning they had struggled for three or four years up to that point you know having success and just was lucky to get in there at the time and then they made the big trade for Johnny LeClaire and Eric Desjardins and started to put together the pieces and of course you know Eric Lindros hands down just a monster beast uh, one of the best players to play the game ever everything about it was just seemed great and just the opportunity to be a everyday ham and egg at that level was hmm. just beautiful that team had one of the one of the most well-known owners in in the national hockey league what was your first experience like when you got to meet ed snyder and and how did that kind of go Mr. Snyder is amazing. Uh, I could never say thank you enough to Mr. Snyder. And my my best example of that is my dad and uh, one of my best friends flew out for a game. And, you know, back then they had, at that time, a swanky, you know, hangout place before the game where you get drinks and they had the big buffet or whatever it is. And my dad and my buddy dressed like they're from Southern Minnesota. Not bad or good. <laughs> it's where we're from. And uh, Mr. Snyder came up without even skipping a beat, sat down, talked to him for at least 10 minutes, introducing himself. And then after the game, when they told me that story, I was like, you know what? That's Mr. Snyder. He's, I mean, he's Mr. Philadelphia. He doesn't need to have time for, you know, anybody like myself and uh, my family. But he went out of his way and his generosity and just his fierce competitiveness. He's, he's one of the best men that I could have had across my life. You guys took that team to the Stanley Cup final in 1997 and lost to a Detroit team that was essentially a powerhouse. Not that you guys weren't, but it was just kind of wrong place at the wrong time. What was that like for you to kind of get so close? You're several years into your career at this point to get so close and kind of just miss out on it. Well, I knew we had a really good team, but I remember watching the Avalanche Detroit series I think we had just got done one in four games or something against the Rangers. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I remember watching that Detroit team, and I remember <laughs> literally praying that Colorado would win that series because Detroit had just found their way to hit on all cylinders at the right time of the season. When they won that series, and I knew we were playing them, I knew it was going to be a huge, even though there's so many papers and places had us pick to win the cup I knew internally that we would have to be on our a plus game all the time just because they were that strong I mean right down to their fourth line at that time I think it was Joey Kosher and Maltby and Draper I can't remember but the whole team was just one of the more solid teams that I had played against especially at that high of uh, stakes especially with them firing on all cylinders and uh, was there was there a lot of superstition in touching the uh, the trophy when you guys won the Eastern Conference Final? I mean, it was it just get away from me. I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't know if there's tape of it. I know I definitely didn't want to touch it because there was one trophy I wanted, <laughs> but I don't remember anybody even going near it or even wanting not to, not to not celebrate it. We were we were happy and proud of ourselves for what we achieved, but we really felt our goal wasn't done. Well, right before you wound up getting traded from the Flyers to Colorado, you had a goal on 4298. It's actually your top YouTube hit. If you type in your name on YouTube, this goal comes up. Do you remember this goal? It's you kind of beat the goalie and then you you kind of scored on a diving shot. It was against the the Los Angeles Kings. I think it was Jamie Store. Do you remember this goal? You ever hear that phrase? Once in a while, a blind squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> that was that moment. I remember it well. It was a great breakout pass, but I can't remember who. Of course, I mishandled it and lost it and caught up to it before Jamie got out, tripped over him. I took a swipe at it, missed it. And then literally from the goal line, don't ask me how, I just literally desperation, just 
swiped at it again and found its way in. And it was a fun moment. <laughs> I'll be honest. Sometimes you just got to be in the right place at the right time. That's that's it. That was one of them. What were your thoughts on Colorado when you got traded? What Obviously, you'd watch them against the Red Wings the year before and kind of just miss out. So what was your mindset going to that team? And what were your thoughts? Well, my, my, my dream was to win a Stanley Cup in Philadelphia. I'll be more than honest. I've said that a million times. Uh, I've, I feel every day I was so blessed to be part of that organization. Uh, we still follow them. My kids got flyers, sweatshirts, and jerseys for Christmas this year. It's just what we do. And when I got traded to Colorado, my first reaction wasn't even the team. It was how different the lifestyle was coming from Philadelphia, where it's, you know, it's pretty, um, I won't say stressful, but it's very intense to the next to the foothills of the mountains of Colorado, which are pretty laid back, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so that was the first thing I noticed. But I knew they had a good team. And of course, they had a great goaltender. I mean, where it all starts. And at that time, uh, it was before the salary cap era, so they were one of the big spenders on the market. Uh, Philadelphia, Colorado, I believe Detroit was. I, I would, I'll blank the other few, but they were one of those teams in the top that were willing to spend to win, and that's that's a special environment to be part of. Does it kind of go back to that whole Philly was a blue-collar town and Denver's not quite the same? And to be honest, they're they're only four or five years into their existence at that point, so was it a little bit of a difficult challenge? for you to kind of see this town and see that you, you had to make them embrace hockey. It was, it was, it was funny because you would think that, but when I got there, we, the years I was there, we were, our building sold out something like five years in a row. And it, it was because they had won the cup in 90, 96, I believe. So they kind of established themselves and I believe that was their first year. And so they established quickly. It was kind of still of a, you know, new kid in town kind of feel. The energy and the excitement, I mean, when you go from winning a cup, no matter where you are, a, a championship in a city your first year, everyone loves you, and 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 it's a great place to be. And they and then the, the organization wanted to keep doing that same thing, and the fans wanted that same thing. So there was a very high energy of, I would say, excitement from the moment I went there. So that was a fun part about being part of Colorado. Well, excitement can lead a little bit to intimidation. Uh, how were your first few games there? Were you kind of intimidated by it? The fact that they had won, the players that were around you. You know, I don't, I don't remember. I, I don't remember being intimidated. I just, I actually just remember being in the car. Now that you asked that, with my brother-in-law, and he liked to listen to sports radio, and I never listened to sports radio, and just because I just didn't want to hear my name. And wouldn't you know, five minutes out of the parking lot, some guy calls in. Why in the H would we ever trade for this Podine kid? <laughs> <laughs> He's, I've never heard of him. He's terrible. I was like, do you mind if I turn this off? <laughs> that was the last, that was the last sports radio I listened to. <laughs> it's probably for the best. Yeah, exactly. Did you see the eventual rise to winning a Stanley cup those first few years there? Could you tell you guys were building on something big? You know, I, we, we were very close. We were so close and um, we had lost to Dallas two years in a row, but they were making moves to further getting by that obstacle. The trade to get Rob Blake was a huge one. I mean, unbelievable player in our so-called, you know, non as popular players, Greg DeVries, uh, John Clem on defense. Our defense was phenomenal. Adam Foote was a beast. And honestly, it's, like I said, it starts from the goal out, and Patrick Waugh was just sensational. We felt we had a chance to win every night with him. And then you throw a couple names like Forsberg and Sackick up front. Then you get a Hayduke, and then you get I mean, they just kept adding players to complement these superstars. And you just saw it coming, and they believed in that mix. You know, we had more of a mix back then of a true third line. So our third line was more, you know, grinding kind of guys who would play against other teams' top lines to hopefully shut them down to give our top-end superstars more ice against the lines they played against. So we had it in Philadelphia, and we had it in Colorado. And back then in those days, it was I thought it worked very well. You were actually on a line with Stefan Yell and Eric Messier. Was that just basically a kind of a grit line, kind of grind it out, play good defense, have have good puck control in the offensive zone? Kill penalties, get it deep, grind them down, keep it down there. And you can call it what you will, but it's more like go out there, boys, take 40 seconds off the clock. If you get one, great. If you give one up, that's really, really, really bad. <laughs> and then let's get the big boys back out there. And we were more than okay with that. 
Does that make you a little like old reliable? Does that make you kind of in, in a pinch when they want strong defense that they're turning to your line? Well, that was the nice thing is we had a really good team. So a lot of games uh, we were up in the third period at crucial times instead of being the team chasing the other team. So we got to be on the ice a lot because that was our job. It was to shut down the other team's top players who were on the ice a lot at the end of games. And what's your work ethic like during this time? It was kind of a blessing in disguise, and it's hard to explain it too to you know young guys today. Is you know my skill level when I went from high school to college to my, to junior to minors, then to the NHL, I was never the best player, so I always had to work harder than the 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 better players. But I had a mindset that if I did more than that person on Monday, I would be a little bit better than them. Tuesday, a little bit better. Wednesday, a little bit better. And then when it really got hard, when it really got hard, that would be my norm. And then for them, because they didn't have to work so hard, it would be really hard for them. And that really was a mindset and a reality that helped me in my career. Because when things got tough, when things got hard, I had been doing it for so long, it was another normal day. And I'm not you know, tooting my own horn, but that was just what I had to do to survive and to compete at the highest level. Let's delve into that championship season, 2000-2001. The All-Star Game was in Colorado, so let's kind of start there. I think there were three other Avalanche that were in the All-Star game. Did you stick around for the events or did you just go home knowing that it was in town and you didn't really have to go anywhere for it? I think I caught the first flight out because <laughs> you don't get many <laughs> days off during the regular season. So I was out of there and I'm sure it was maybe somewhere warm. <laughs> but I actually, yeah, I was... I think I went, it was either Vegas, one year we went up to the mountains, but that that all-star break is very prized because when you're trying to work very, very hard every day and you're focused and it is a stressful job, it's just what it is. And you're competing each day to be able to do what you love at the highest level. That You get a break like that, it's like letting the, you know, the wind out of the sails and just taking a breather. Do you still watch it on TV or do you just kind of out of sight, out of mind? I need, I need my own personal time to kind of just refresh the batteries. Believe it or not, I can remember watching that because we wanted to watch our buddies. And, you know, usually by that time, it's, how do I put it? It's happy hour and <laughs> you want to sit and relax and why not watch your friends, you know, have fun out there. And so you can maybe give them a little crap when you get back to Denver if they take a toe pick or <laughs> something like that. Now, at what point did it dawn on you that this team seemed special, that it seemed like it had something building and it seemed like you might be able to hoist the cup this year? We played Detroit at home, and we were, I think, four points up on Detroit. And it was late in the season, and we we beat them four to two. It was a really, really good game. And we had to fly to Minnesota the next night. And this is Minnesota's first year. Jacques Lemaire, tough team to play against, just locked down. And all of a sudden, Detroit played the next night, and they won. So we're like, we have to win this game against Minnesota. Or so we're right back in the same you know muck that we just tried to get out of. And those two back-to-back games, I think Joe Sackick showed up, and it was Joe Sackick in Minnesota, you know, and carried us on his shoulders for a bit. And I'm sure Peter did his part. And then we went into the playoffs, and then you think you got the momentum right, and you're you got you have a good first round. Then you go into LA, you're up three-one. You lose one nothing, it's three two. You lose one nothing, it's three three. All of a sudden, you're in another game seven, and all of a sudden, it's. We, I think we were up. I want to say we were up two to one, and face off in our zone. I think it was Spolinski hits the post off the draw or Murray, and then all of a sudden we get in the third period and we start rolling. We take the series, and then we go play St. Louis and the zone possession. Forty five minutes them, <laughs> fifteen minutes us. Average a game. Patrick was playing great. They, they were having some struggling in their nets, and we win it. And all of a sudden, you lose Peter Forsberg. And I can't remember when we lost Peter. I think it was after the L.A. series. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my goodness, what, what just happened? Here's the arguably the greatest player in the world, and now we don't have him. So you get those adversities that come through. So when you say, when did you know? There were, <laughs> there were many moments I, wasn't, I didn't know, but there were a couple that, that we got through, the adversity that we got through, and... You know, you go to a game seven and you get a, a rookie like Alex Tange who steps up and who's going to be a future all-star and is a difference maker. And those are the moments that you really see the character people that are shown. And that was one of them. Is there any stigma at that point in time behind winning the President's Trophy? Because now there's a little bit of a stigma to it where, I mean, obviously teams want to win it, but a lot of the fans get nervous when they see their team doing that well in the regular season and they wonder if it's going to carry over, just like Tampa Bay Lightning a few years ago when they got swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets. Was there any sort of that stigma back then? 
For us, there was zero of it because the two seasons before we had lost to Dallas in Game 7 to go to the Cup, and we they had won the President's Trophy, so we had to go to Dallas for Game 7, and we lost both. So that was actually a big focus for the, the year we won was to get that uh, President's Trophy so we could have, if it did go to a Game 7, so we could be at home because we had really good fans, really good energy, and we and we had a, a very, very good home record, if I remember well. So that was actually a big deal for us to get it to put ourselves in that position so we weren't on the road again in case that happened. Losing two years in a row to Dallas, are they on your mind when you win the President's Trophy and and the playoffs are coming around? Are they a team you're like, I want to kick their ass, I want to go in there, and I want to, it's been two in a row, let's get it back. Or is it one of those, like, we'll see how it plays out, and if we play them, we play them, we don't, we don't. It was more, I think it was more a B. I mean, we were a very focused team, and we were just focused. You spent so much time focusing on the opponent that you got coming up. You really don't have a lot of time to think about past grudges or anything like that, except, you know, like regular season with Colorado and Detroit, what they had. But when it comes to playoffs, you really just, you're so focused on looking at who you're getting. And then that's, that's it. That's everything for the next, you know, eight to 14 days. What was it like playing in front of Patrick Waugh? He's a guy that you, you see a lot and, and he's very boisterous and very vocal on the ice as a coach. I mean, is that is he the same way in practice and whatnot, or is that something that we we kind of see? And behind closed doors, he's more of a quiet guy. What is he like? I, I've never seen a more focused individual. I mean, it'd be hard pressed for me to say that Patty Waugh isn't the greatest goaltender that ever played. He the confidence he gave you when you played in front of him, and like you said, he's very boisterous and he's very very adamant about what he believes is right and wrong. I remember one practice and I still laugh about it. You brought up a funny story. We practiced for an hour and then 12 minutes in, I made a move and I scored on him, which never happened. Trust me. And he looks up at me and he goes, big Poe, no one else will score today. And I started chuckling, you know, they thought it was funny. I watched him. Nobody else scored a goal on him in 48 <laughs> minutes. After the whistle blew, he went over, broke his stick over the boards, went, showered and went home. <laughs> so, yes, he was very intense, very focused. And when you put his mind to something, it was rarely that it didn't happen. There was an overtime in game four. I believe game three had gone to double overtime in uh, St. Louis, and game four went to overtime as well. There's a story that's gone around that says that Bork was a little frustrated in the locker room. He apparently had kind of told you guys he was feeling a little frustrated at the fact that it was going back to overtime for the second game in a row. Do you recall kind of what he said in the locker room and how that, how that went? I remember it like it was yesterday. Forwards, maybe hold up the D once. <laughs> I mean, they were just, like I said before, I wasn't lying. I think zone time was 45 minutes to 15. They were just, they were a really, really good hockey club and they just wouldn't stop coming. And when it's a war of attrition, that's a war is a bad word, but when it's a game of attrition, you get tired. And I'm sure... At that point, Raymond was just sick and tired of getting his 40-year-old body slammed up against the boards for three quarters of a period for the fifth game in a row. So, no, I remember it very well. And, you know, when Mr. B speaks, you you listen. And I think we picked (laughs) it up a little bit for him, but hopefully. I don't remember too well, but we tried. What was it like with him coming in at the trade deadline? And and was there any fatigue in just constantly hearing about his story? I mean, it was peppered everywhere by the media of just – his last year, he's trying to win it, and it was just over and over again. Was was that something that, that affected you guys? I know you're kind of away from the media, but it, was it something on your mind? It's funny you say that because that was almost a blessing for the rest of us because it took all the pressure off us because all you heard was Ray Bork, Ray Bork, Ray Bork. And there's a great interview with Ken Danico. He comes out in the finals, and he's like, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Ray Bork. And, you know, he did his interview and then he went off and then Ray came up and they asked him about what Ken said. And Ray's like, I'm sick and tired of hearing about myself. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it honestly, the rest of us were just free to play our game then. And so it was a plus for the rest of us. And it was, I mean, it, I'm sure it wore on Raymond more than he admitted. But to be the focal point for two months in a row, it's, I'm sure it got a little bit tiring at times. Let's do a little bit of um, standout moments. Do you have a standout moment from the quarterfinals against Vancouver? Like one one moment that kind of sticks in your mind? Actually, I do. I remember the head coach calling me out after the first game and saying that I needed to play more physical. I wasn't playing physical enough. And back then, I don't know if they still do. They kept track of hits. 
And uh, I remember the next game, after the game, they brought it in. I had something like nine or ten hits, which was a, kind of a big deal because they only called a hit back then, like when you really hit somebody. <laughs> and uh, I still remember sitting in my stall thinking, yep, I'm feeling those nine and ten hits right now. <laughs> I was so sore. But again, that was just a, a, a nice realization to me of what it takes to have success at that level. It's, it does not come easy and it does not come in your comfort zone. You got to get uncomfortable and you got to be willing to do that little extra. And the best stories from Gretzky's boys in the bus, you know, when the Oilers were leaving, they thought that they'd see the Islanders, you know, whooping it up and having a big party and half of them are sitting in the, the training room with ice bags on them, you know, <laughs> beer in their hand, quiet, sullen. And that's what it's like. And, and that's what it takes. How about the semifinals against Los Angeles? One moment that kind of sticks out in your mind. I, I already hit on it is that it literally was when LA hit the post when it was two to one. And we, we literally, I don't, maybe it was one nothing at that time. I can't, I can't remember, but we didn't score a goal in game five and game six and we just couldn't score. And it was one of those moments where I think if they would have scored, that could have been a huge momentum changer in that game seven. And, I don't know, soon after we just, maybe it was the start of the next period, we just, we got our, you know, our big guns got their game going and then it was done. How do you get out of a funk like that? If you're, if, if you're almost goalless two games in a row, that weighs on you guys. How do you kind of get out of that funk? Is it just kind of keep dredging in the mud and hope something goes in? We just kept going back to what we were doing. And then I remember after game six, Coach Hartley and the coaching staff sat down with our big boys and just did a couple tweaks here and there. And, you know, we stuck to those in game seven and they ended up working out as the second half of the game go went as we started wearing them down. But it also sometimes takes maybe not a lucky break, but a break to go your way to, you know, get that spark going. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. A lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ray, Ray Bork's frustration aside, how about the Western Conference final against St. Louis, the one moment that kind of sticks in your in your mind? You know what? It was two moments by the same guy, Stefan Yell. We were in game, I think we were up, I want to say 2-1. And he made a move on the goalie, wide open net, missed the open net. They went down, scored one in overtime. I remember sitting on the bus with Yeller, and I mean, there was nothing you could say to even lift his spirits. And it was like one of those little God winks the next night. Back to overtime. Who gets the puck in overtime? Stefan Yell scores the goal. All of a sudden, now everybody's happy. <laughs> so, and that turned the series around. So I, I, that, that's what I remember from that one. The Stanley Cup playoffs are definitely uh, ebbs and flows. I mean, it can go your way one minute and you can be playing lights out. And the next minute, it can just completely go to crap. That's that's a prime example. Yeah, it's, that's, the, that's almost the ultimate <laughs> example. <laughs> Now, the Stanley Cup final versus New Jersey, it winds up going to a Game 7, which is at home because you guys won the President's Trophy, which wound up definitely working in your favor. What's the emotion, the pressure, the thought process, all that stuff rolled into Game 7? Believe it or not, once the game starts, the game's on. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a hockey game. Once you get the jitters out, maybe get that big hit in first or whatever it is. But again, I remember walking out of the arena after the morning skate and my old teammate from Philly, Bob Corkum, was walking in. And I went by Bob and I said, what's up, Bobby? He said, not much. I said, well, Bobby, I know one thing and one thing only. One of us is leaving here happy tonight. <laughs> He's like, Pods, you're right. <laughs> that was, and that was it. I mean, you do the same thing. You go eat your lunch and you try You try not to think past the moment. You don't, you don't think of that. You think about, you know, taking your nap. You think about getting up. You think about getting to the rink at five. You think about your stretch and just staying in the moment more than anything. Sounds might sound cheesy, but it's true. Do you remember a lot of that day leading up to to actually winning? I mean, not the celebration, that stuff. Because w when you get married, it's almost like you get hit in the head with a mallet. You can't remember a lot of the day. Is is a game seven like that? Is does it still stick in your mind, or is a lot of it just a blur? No, nothing. I don't. I don't remember a thing. I mean, a couple highlights from the game, and that that's it. It's just. It's almost like you said. It's almost like you're in such a zone that you you're in such a momentary zone that. When it's gone, it's it's almost like what happened, and that's you hit it on the head. That's exactly how it felt. I found an article from your hometown paper. It was maybe the day or two after you had won the Stanley Cup, and you're quoted as saying, "It's a small price to pay when when talking about a tooth that you had lost that it, you'd been punched in the <laughs> face." Do you still feel that way about the tooth? And and it was a small price to pay to hoist Lord Stanley's cup. 
It was not only a small price to pay, it was a great memory that and a story I've told a million times. <laughs> <laughs> as far as finally getting over the hump, uh, you had lost it obviously in 1997. So did that make this this that much more sweet? You're kind of heading towards the, the downward slope of your career. You've been in the league seven, eight years. What was it like to finally win it? You know what? You, you, you would think that you'd be so pumped, you'd, you'd be partying and you'd be so excited and happy. But it was amazing. The first thought I had was all the people that helped me get to that moment. I always said to myself, I'd, I'd love to win just to know what it feels like. All of a sudden, you start remembering about your high school coach, your youth coach, the, the, the crosstown rival high school coach who would spend hours with you because you're, so you were such a bad skater and wouldn't bend your knees. The college that took a chance on you when you were literally not that good of a hockey player. You think about all those people that took a chance on you. And um, literally, that's that's what came to my mind. You think about my grandpa, who I wanted to win the cup for. I mean, I didn't even really want to win it for myself. I wanted the experience, but I wanted to give it to my grandpa and kind of prove to him that I was, you know, worth something besides almost getting kicked out of high school. <laughs> well, you actually called him from center ice after winning, correct? That was that was your go-to. That was your phone call, right? That was my first phone call. You know, the, we, the big party was in the locker room, and my wife and I and our close friends uh, went out on the ice, and no one was there. It was just blissful. And I gave my grandpa a call, and I said, you know, freaking grandpa, we did it. It was short and simple, and he, he was just saying how proud he was of me. And, you know, just being able to do that it was cool. Skating with the cup, what was that like? There had been several players that had gotten it down the line before it was your turn. So was it cool to kind of see what they did, skating it around and just taking their time and soaking it in? You know what? I was looking at those guys thinking, give me that freaking thing. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't watching them. And I grabbed it and I turned and my best friend and my wife, a couple other friends were up in the corner. And the moment you get it, you just forget about everything else. It's just like a surge of this is everything you've worked for since you were playing driveway hockey as a seven-year-old. You can't explain the feeling of nothingness, of just pure serenity. You mentioned earlier that you thought a lot of your coaches and, and those people. Did you have any of a Michael, a Michael Jordan syndrome where Michael Jordan always remembered that one coach that cut him in, in high school? And, and when he was winning championships, he kind of used that as motivation. Oh, there's many. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have just one like Mr. Jordan, but I, I would think it was, I think it was in 1986. I played junior A hockey for the Rochester Mustangs in the United States Hockey League, and we're sitting around a kegger at one of the Billet family's house in the backyard. I just I'd come back from uh, San Diego, and one of the guys on the team said, you know, he knew one of the guys that played at UMD. He said, "This guy said you'll never play a single game at UMD ever." still remember I, I remember the guy i remember the guy he said who said the quote and i was like that that one still sticks in my head what was it like to get a front row seat to watch watch bork after what was it 20 22 years to finally hoist it it was really cool i mean i mean words like persistence don't even uh describe a guy who was so loyal to one organization for so many years and then they grant him a chance to go somewhere because they were not in the position to play at the highest level like they you know are these days and they trade him to a team like colorado and he's got a chance to you know chase that ultimate glory and you just watch it and it's just like man and that's unbelievable that he's not only I mean, we all know how great he is. He's one of the greatest defensemen of all time. But just what a special moment that is to persevere, would be the right word I'd use, for so long and then get that chance and make the most of it. Was there ever a moment when you watching, we were watching one of the players skate around with the puck where you're like, oh, man, I hope he doesn't drop that damn thing? Oh, the cup. <laughs> um I don't know. I, I remember Martin Skula. He was a rookie. He must have thought, you know, every year is like this. We win the cup. Hey, you must win the cup every year. And I remember, you know, I'm crying. I'm bawling. And he gets he gets it. And he's 19. And he raises it up. And he's like, oh, frick, this is heavy. <laughs> That's all he could say. I mean, what else do you say at 18 years old, right? What was the what was the locker room celebration like? Who did you kind of party with in there when, when it was time for the champagne and the beer? You know, it's funny in there, there's, there's so, so much family, so much media, so much going on. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a party, but it's more, I mean, there's just a lot going on. And again, like I told you before, I don't like big group gatherings. So 
for me, separating myself and going somewhere kind of more solemn, like out on the ice and spending time with people you love, that meant more to me than uh, being part of kind of what, you, not the circus, but just the big hoopla going on and uh, the, the celebratory interviews, champagne, whatever it was that was going on there, because it was just a lot to take in. Is it just because there's so much emotion going through you? I think I think it's just that the moment is so personal because you're the only one who's done that journey. I mean, even the people in your life that are there with you, they weren't there when you were playing mites at five years old, you know? They, were, they weren't there when you got cut from PUEA and bawling in your basement when your mom's got to make you an egg sandwich. They weren't there when you lost the MVP trophy in Baname because your best friend Dave Atcherman was bigger and stronger and a better hockey player than you. So... All those moments and, you know, these kids, they, they don't, they, they have these moments happen now and their parents think their, their world's ended. I see it happen every day. I work with young kids and I want, just want to sit down and explain to them this, it's not all balloons, cupcakes, and, you know, unicorns. You don't win that way. You don't have success that way. It, it comes with some trials and some tribulations and successes along the way. And hopefully you'll learn from all of them. It's always a learning experience. Win, lose, draw, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. My favorite story, I love this story, is that, and you're going to have to elaborate on this, but Barry Melrose bet you <laughs> that you couldn't wear your, your uniform for 24 hours. So after you won the cup, you literally had skates, the entire uniform on for 25 hours, correct? Okay, so I walk in, and honest to goodness, by the time we were leaving the Pepsi Center, everybody was dressed, and I was just not, I didn't, I was just soaking in the moment, and all of a sudden, one of my teammates dared me to wear my stuff to the chop house bar and grill. And it was just a place we all went to after the game. And so I walk in and someone's like hitting Barry. Barry, look at Pose, look at Pose. And he looks <laughs> up, he said, that's nothing. When we won an Adirondack, we had a guy on our team wear his stuff for 24 hours. It's like a Christmas story, right? A triple dog dare to stick your tongue against the freezing <laughs> pole or whatever it is. I'm still 12, we're all still 12 years old at times. And so I wore it out and we went home and I still remember I went to bed, it was six in the morning, trying to get a couple hours of sleep. And my wife looks at me and she said, take that stuff off. And I looked at her and I said, Sherry, <laughs> I promise you, if I do this, this story will be bigger than anything else I do in my whole career. <laughs> and so, yeah, we wore it for 25 hours. When I finally took it off, my feet were literally twice the size as normal, at least. All my cuts were like turning like white and kind of green. It. I mean, it was... <laughs> disgusting those those last few hours did you take that anywhere public and what was the smell like coming from that thing we went up to the mountains to our favorite little watering hole and it was disgusting at the end you know those things you shoot like so you go to a bar and they that water soda you know those the, the guns like almost i was taking that and putting it all around my body i mean i was literally overheating <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but no, it was, it was gross. It definitely made for a good story though. Cause it's, 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 it's on your Wikipedia. There's, there's been articles written about it. So you've, you're, you've definitely become a legend in the, in the, the world of long uniform wearing. Yeah. That's uh, I don't know if that's a legend anybody wants to have <laughs> or a record. What was the, what was the parade like? There was about half a million fans there. They were about six years removed from the last one. So what was that experience like? I think we had fire trucks. Yeah, we did. And I was with Daniel Highnote. Daniel played for many years. He's actually the godfather to my little boy, Junior. He was like my little brother on that team. And we're still very, very close. But yeah, we, we were just having fun. I mean, we knew what we were. And just to see a half a million people let out of work and on the streets, it was crazy. Like that's, it was, it was unbelievable. And then you get down to the, I believe it was the Capitol. And then you have the big, you know, speeches and stuff like that and it was just amazing it was really 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 cool it's it's tough to describe it's a little surreal i mean you kind of you're almost looking at yourself outside your body a little bit thinking you know who am i to be in the middle of this big parade but it was it was a blessed blessed experience i guess that 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 one you didn't need any solitude the solitude had been set aside and you could just get down and party <laughs> the solitude was done <laughs> When you see the Stanley Cup in person now, do you always kind of look for your name and check out that team and just kind of, as a reminder, bring it, does it bring back good memories? You know, I always look at it. It's, it's, 
I mean, it's the world's most iconic trophy. I don't care what anybody says. It's the greatest trophy in the world, uh, whether you like hockey or not. So when I see it, I don't put my kids, you know, they, I, I think they half believe I played, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like we went up to the hall of fame for a tourney with my boy and he was all excited to show his friends. And that's, that's nice. But for me, just the sight of it, I still love watching the things I'll watch. You talk about watching hockey. Um, I, I just love watching the old 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s games. I, the, I mean, just the way they played compared to today's young kids or young mm. men. It's just, a to- it's not even comparable, but just to see how the game has grown and where it's came from is, for me, that's fun. Those are the, those are the guys that I got to meet along the way when I got to the NHL. Well, it's really admirable that not only did you win the Stanley Cup that year, but you added the King Clasey Memorial Trophy for your work in the community and your your humanitarian contribution. What was it like to kind of tack that on to what you've already accomplished in 2000, 2001? Um, it was it was it was special. It was, it meant a lot. It was humbling to be completely honest. Um, you know, being at that award show that I was at and with all those great players and and you've got to remember, I grew up in a trailer park in you know southeastern Rochester, Minnesota. So when you're up there, you start having, again, those flashbacks, like, what am I doing here? But I had a very good friend, Hayne Ellis, at the time, who literally wrote a copy of a book. Like, I mean, I would say that thick about the accomplishments of what I had done that really hadn't talked to many people about. And I'm not, I don't like self-promoting and, and things like that, but it was very nice of him to actually take upon himself. And he was the one who pushed it out there and did it. And they decided to go a direction of, you know, not just giving it to a name, but to give it to someone who is making differences in different communities. And they ended up d- deciding to bring me out there. And that was, it was real, again, just something I never expected in my life. And I felt very blessed to be part of it. And it's always nice to get a pat on the back for what you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. What have you been doing with life after hockey? What kind of keeps you busy these days? Well, I call myself the busiest man with no job. <laughs> I just kind of, I chase <laughs> my kids a lot. I got a 17-year-old daughter, 14-year-old boy. I've done some work in the you know, the hockey representation agency with uh, Octagon Hockey. Did hockey, did community camps with the kids here in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. I coach my kids, but more than anything, I'm just, you know, happy to be back home in Minnesota. I always wanted to settle down here and hopefully be able to hang my hat here when it's all said and done. When the kids leave, maybe me and my wife can say hi again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and now the most important question, where do you currently keep your championship ring? Where is that thing? Where does it reside? Where does it sit? I knew you were going to ask that. Um, So I've never worn it. I don't tell the story very often. No, I, I gave it to my grandpa. And I kind of wanted to start a family ring. We don't. We didn't have a family ring. And then he gave it to my dad. And then my dad gave it back to me because he didn't want to lose it. And so as, as current, dads tend to do. Yeah, as dads tend to do. And so now, if I had to take a guess, <laughs> it's, it's got to be in one of my closed drawers. I got to be honest. I it's, it's in the house. I know that much <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Yeah, you might want to make sure you you know where that is because that's a good heirloom. That's nice. Your your, your great grandchildren are going to appreciate that one. Before we move, I promise I'll give you I'll give you an email and let you know I got it, found it. <laughs> hey, any pictures? I'd love to see it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> well, listen, Sean, it was great speaking with you today. It was great. I I appreciate you taking several minutes out of your day to just kind of relive the past and best of luck moving forward and best of luck with youth hockey and and thanks again. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to I One Two. This podcast is produced by Ed Miller and me, Max Morgan of Malix Media. I One Two is available wherever podcasts are found. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram at I One Two Podcast. Until next time.